verses 8 through 10. Hebrews 11.8 By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And that's the title of Brother John's remarks tonight, A City Whose Builder and Maker is God. At this time, please give your attention to Brother John. Thank you, Brother Virgil, for the reading. Good evening, everyone. Send the greetings from hot and dry and dusty New Mexico to everyone here. It's a pleasure to be able to address you this evening as brethren of Christ and especially to deliver this message tonight to hopefully uplift us and edify us in a way that we really need in these days, these times that we live in. Tonight we're going to touch on our household, we're going to discuss the blessed hope that we have through the seed of Abraham, we're going to talk about our foundation, our cornerstone, we're going to talk about we as sojourners in this life, we're going to discuss our citizenship, we as ambassadors of Christ, and we'll wrap up by discussing some verses from Deuteronomy chapter 30 where we make choices which determine the destiny of each one of us. Now, the promises made to Abraham, we as Christadelphians feel that this is the cornerstone of our faith, and as such, these are dear to each and every believer. The doctrine of salvation of our faith defines Jesus as the seed, the single seed, of Abraham, the Savior, through whom the blessing of the promise would be made sure, as in Genesis 22 and 18, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed, as well as in Genesis, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3 and 16, not as seeds of many, but as one in thy seed, which is Christ. Our sojourn as strangers among the ungodly has made the promises even more alive to each and every one of us. As we see the evil actions of the wicked continue to escalate in the world around us, we become more and more aware of this need, this desire builds in each and every one of us for the coming of our Lord and Master to fulfill the promises and establish the new world order of peace and righteousness. We see a world that has turned its back on God who no longer feels reverence for their creator, who even denies a creator, 
The time in which we live is really a time of trouble as was never was before, as the days of Noah, as we've mentioned. But as always, if we turn to the Scriptures, we have that continuing vision of glory, glory and the message of hope for those who will put their trust in the Lord. Now we look at this eternal city. There's an important allegory that we see here that Brother Virgil read for us this evening in Hebrews relating to this fulfillment of this promise to Abraham. For he, that is Abraham, looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This isn't a literal city made of mortar and stone that we think of, but a great future city comprised of immortalized saints. It is the place that Abraham looked for and one that we, as brethren of Christ, look for as well. Abraham felt like a stranger in this land of promise, realizing his eternal destiny would lay in the future. And sharing his faith and this faithful anticipation, we long to enter the city that God is preparing for all people who are related to Abraham through this seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we endure trials and temptations in a world that's gone mad, it seems, with lust and crime, we're comforted and sustained by our vision of hope, this city of God. Also in Hebrews 11 and 16 we read, where they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so we see the term city of God then is an analogy representing an entrance into this blessed state of immortality. The only access we have into this condition is through our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, being baptized into his death, into his burial, and his resurrection, and in taking on his name through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And as we've heard spoken this week so far in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And another verse that would come to mind as we read this, Acts 4 and 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So we see then a major part of the building of every physical city are the houses and its citizens and its places of worship. And in the spiritual counterpart, excuse me, the structures are the people who make up this habitation of the Lord. And we have a very misquoted scripture that we refer to in John 14 where it says, In my Father's house are many mansions, or in many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, he says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So we see this act of preparing a place for us. Also in 2 Corinthians 6, For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So it's hard for us really to imagine the reality of these words in its fullness. When the knowledge of God becomes universal, the conditions of Eden restored, restored, and the Most High God, the Maker of heaven and earth, dwelling among His people. Now let's talk about a cornerstone. Prior to the raising of any structure itself, a lot of consideration and planning and work goes into laying its foundation. And the same is true of this structure that we're speaking of this evening. As Paul warned, we must be careful how we build upon the foundation that was laid by him. For he says in 1 Corinthians 3, For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's building, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. So we see Paul uses the cornerstone as a type for Christ. Let's also read over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. And are built up upon a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So Peter again gives the same illustration as well. And in addition, he defines the faithful as living stones. He says, ye also as lively or living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So Christ is this perfect cornerstone that we're referring to, by which an accurate plumb line can then be drawn to continue the building of the rest of the household of God. Now in a slightly different figure, Paul portrayed our future immortality as a house that is from heaven. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, he says, then we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Here Paul has expressed the urgency of our emotions longing for the coming glory of immortality. Again, describing a vision, Paul says he was caught up into, the, into paradise and he heard unspeakable words, which it's not lawful for man to utter. So we look forward to the day when after judgment we shall be caught up, raised up, from a mortal to an immortal nature and dwell with our Lord Jesus in his kingdom here on the earth. Another inspiring vision that comes to our mind, given to John on the Isle of Patmos, as he wrote in the book of Revelation, he says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, 
the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with him and be their God. Revelation 21. The letter to the Hebrews also describes this great city. He says, in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul writes, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable innumerable company of angels. And so when we meditate on something like this, this vision of the glory, then we too echo the words of Psalms, Psalms 23. We always remember, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our Lord, the Son of God, had been given charge over his Father's house. Our hope is that we will remain part of that glorious building. In Hebrews 3 it says, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So here we have some conditions. Some conditions for each and every one of us as brethren of Christ. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And so, amidst all the turmoil and the fear and the emotion that's taken place that has resulted in the last few years over terrorist attacks and bombings and things all over the world, it's good for us to remember the message that was delivered to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, when he said, where it says, The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and he giveth it to whomsoever he will. God is working with these countries of the world to fulfill his purpose, whether it be the United States, whether it's Britain, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Russia, all of these players that are working to fulfill God's plan, all under his control. And that's not to say that God caused tragedy, these terrorist attacks, only that he allows unruly and evil elements that are in place in the society that we live to run their course to further his purpose. However unpleasant it might seem to us to think that God would allow atrocities, we have to realize that all of this fits within our, master, within our creator's plan. Conditions and attitudes have changed so quickly that we need to be reminded of our godly perspective and the responsibilities as brethren of Christ as sojourners in this world that we live in? How should we as children of God behave in these troublesome times? For example, how do we respond when someone asks us, why don't you display an American flag? Why don't you have pins and ribbons in support for our servicemen? What should be our stance if we're asked to to take part in these rallies and these patriotic festivals that, that, that are carrying on. Should we support our country, a kingdom of men, or do we only support the kingdom of God? Well, we know the answer has to come when we turn to the source of all wisdom, to God's spirit word. And he tells us here, we ask ourselves, 
Where is our true citizenship? Well, if we turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, we see again, as we talked about briefly a minute ago, in chapter 2 of Ephesians at verse 11, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so as Gentiles, we would have been without this hope, without the knowledge of God. But because of God and His grace and His mercy, He's allowed all mankind to come in contact with his plan of salvation, to understand who his son is. And so we are without excuse. We understand God's plan of salvation, and it's up to us to take a hold of that. He continues by saying in verse 14, I'm sorry, uh, verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which was afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So again, this describes our citizenship. We now have the opportunity to be part of the seed of Abraham. Yet what role does our natural, national citizenship in this country have to do in our lives? We have one instance where even Paul himself, when he was in danger of being flogged, made it known of his Roman citizenship, and it served to provide Paul with protection momentarily so he could continue with his preaching He didn't feel it was necessary to denounce his citizenship at that time, seeing that he was allowed to continue preaching and teaching. Today, many of us as brethren of Christ that live in this country have the same blessing to be able to preach and teach and to worship in peace without being persecuted. But this is where our allegiance stops. Our allegiance is truly then to God. We're blessed with this country. We're thankful to God for the country we live in. But our allegiance is still to our Heavenly Father. Paul also tackles the problem of relating to the world as servants of God. From now on, we are not regarded from a worldly point of view, he says. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself, to himself, by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Then he continues to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, As though God did beseech you by us, 
we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, only possessing the sin nature and casting off the body of sin, the flesh, he was able to put on immortality through his sinless, sinless character. Similarly, in the letter to the Ephesian Ecclesia, Paul writes, Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Fearlessly make known. For which I am an ambassador in chains, Paul says, an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Think of the the enthusiasm that Paul had when he said those words, declaring it fearlessly. So we are ambassadors, as he says, ambassadors of God's message, and we have the responsibility to make the country of our true citizenship known to those around us. Foreign ambassadors refrain from participation in local politics, and so do we. Does this mean that we consider ourselves to be above the law of the land? I'm sure we've heard that before. No, we're not considered to be above the law, but we're commanded to be law-abiding and pray for those who are in authority. As 1 Timothy 2 says, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Nevertheless, when conflicts and allegiance occur, we ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5 and 29. God gives us further instruction on how to behave toward the governments of our world. In Titus 3, 1 and 2, he says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. So we are expected to be obedient, humble, and respectful, peaceable among all men. Even though we're not of this world, we still have the responsibility to behave as conscientious citizens, we're to pay our taxes, we're to pay our bills, we're to give respect and honor where honor is due. It behooves us to be an example to those around us. We are representing our God and our King. Let's read now from 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, Dear brethren, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, they, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king 
whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. He says, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. So we see laid before us here in these verses the responsibility of us as believers, as ambassadors. We are by God's grace living in this world, but we are not to be of this world. In 1 John 2, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, are of the world and not of the Father. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The man who does the will of God. So where is our love? Where is our honor? And where is our allegiance? Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And referring to the children of Israel... We see the example that's left by them for us. As sojourners in this world, we use the type of them in the wilderness. And remember, Moses delivered this message to them just before they were going into the promised land. Just before. Just before he died. And Joshua took him into the land. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. He says... See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil, and that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whether thou goest to possess it. Now, doesn't that sound similar to John that we just read? He continues in verse 17, But if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish, and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land, whether thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. And again, verse 19, he says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing, and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and the length of thy days. So this is plain to us as it was to the children of Israel. The choices before us, each and every day we make choices. Sometimes we regret our choices. Sometimes our choices are wise. We base our decisions on God's word. All of our life, everything that we do, our jobs, our vocation, everything that we we work at that occupies our time, 
we base our decisions on God's word and how we should act. And that's what he's trying to get to the children of Israel here. Choose this day who you will serve. I give before you blessing and cursing. If you fall away, he says, if you turn to other gods, do we have the opportunity to turn to other gods? More often than not, the cares of this world become the other gods that can carry us away from our Heavenly Father. We see now that we live in a time of testing. And sadly, this country that we live in, at one time, seemed to be more godly, is going closer and closer, or farther and farther, excuse me, from God, from following and from from even considering Him as Creator. And as this happens, we see the fall of this country, the time when great wars will come, a time when even our youth will be called to arms. These events would, of course, make it necessary for brethren to appear before boards to justify their refusal to defend this country. Remember, ambassadors don't participate in battles of their countries. Christ made the lesson clear. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. It wasn't time to fight. But we know that there will be a time. For years we have enjoyed the privilege of living in a country at peace. However, things are changing, and we may be faced with a time of testing upon the brotherhood. We know it's inevitable. Are we, are we preparing ourselves for these days? Strength to continue our walk toward the kingdom can be drawn from such occasions as Bible schools and gatherings and ecclesial attendance. When we remember the trials and the testings of of our Lord and how he endured for our sakes. And so in summarizing our thoughts, we, we have seen that although we have no permanent place in the world, as representatives of God, we should have complete respect and honor of the country that we live in. If we're confronted about the apparent lack of patriotism, we should be ready to give an answer to be able to defend the country where we pay our allegiance, the city whose builder and maker is God. And as King Nebuchadnezzar came to realize, God is in control of the kingdom of men. And it's important to, to await the unfolding of God's purpose and not try to conform his plan to fit into our ideas. Until the ushering in of the kingdom of God, we're required to remain law-abiding, submissive to authority, and an example to those to whom we come in contact. And may it be that our Lord Jesus Christ would soon return and in his mercy allow us to serve by flying the flag of righteousness, we might say, throughout all eternity. And so now... Shifting gears, we might say, Paul, as the writer's, writer of the Hebrews, cautions us, or the believers, he says, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhort one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And brethren, don't we see the day approaching more and more? 
Meeting with our brothers and sisters at Bible schools can be very refreshing, can be uplifting. As our brother Pat said this morning, life can sometimes get us down. And being here with those of like faith can help us overcome the things that bother us, things that can get us down. It can give us a new perspective. It can remind us that we're not alone in the struggles that we all go through. We find comfort being among friends who share the same common beliefs, the foundational principles of salvation. And it's significant that the word comfort in the New Testament is usually translated from the Greek word paraklesis. And it can also be translated consolation or exhortation or encouragement. Paraklesis is from two words meaning to come alongside. And that's part of the comfort that we feel here, isn't it, brethren? To come alongside our brothers and sisters, sharing the comfort that comes from knowing God and being brethren in Christ. There's also a relaxing effect, as Brother Robert pointed out to us, an effect in leaving the turmoil of the hectic world behind and contemplating God's Word, sharing it with each other. The experience should be, in, should be enriching as we feast on the Spirit Word. At Bible schools, we come together uni- uniting our prayers, our songs of praise and thanksgiving to the Creator of heaven and earth giving praise and honor to the God of Israel, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we must in faith sojourn in this life until the return of our Lord. The children of Israel, the seed of Abraham, are the chosen nation of God. And they agreed to a covenant with God by saying, All that thou sayest we will do. And after Moses told them of the things concerning worship and the rest of the law, they acknowledged God and were to follow specific lifestyles on God's terms. There is but only one way of salvation. This is God's purpose in selecting people who will glorify Him and possess immortality. Together as the body of the bride of Christ, the chosen generation, we have to hold fast our faith teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. This must take priority in our lives to ward out the will of the flesh. We should delight in the Lord to do His will at all times. Jesus promised in John 14, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. If there is not found in us a conscious desire to do the will of God, then there will be no abode, no dwelling with with us. We always have to examine ourselves to see if our faith and love is steadfast as the elect of God should be. And if not, we should make firm resolutions immediately. No believer would deny that we are living in the last days, the signs, the times, so anxiously, anxiously awaited by past generations of believers. It's now obvious on every side, day by day, we're marching forward, getting closer and closer to the advent of our Lord. But Paul forewarned that these last days would be very perilous. 
He gave an exact description of the conditions of mankind now in the 20th century. You can turn over there and read some of that in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And see if this doesn't describe exactly the days that we're living in. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, we'll start. He says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, and unthankful and unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such, turn away. It seems as though you can pick these out of a newspaper in any large city in the United States. We see that there's been a moral collapse within this country. Standards have quickly declined, whether politically, religiously, socially, Things relating to the modern family have all fallen apart in this country. And then in the middle of such a world, we, not, we must not be of it. We must continue our walk down the bumpy path toward the kingdom, ever searching and ever learning. Concerning his disciples, Jesus said, I pray that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou should keep them from evil. We must therefore hold fast the standards set by Christ and the apostles, the standards that have faithfully been upheld by past generations of believers. Brethren, this isn't a time for change, but a time to hold tight, a time to look closer, a time to choose life. Thank you.